0: Two Thessalonians, chapter 1. I'm going to read those verses, then we'll pray. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you abounds to each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God which you also, for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay those with tribulation, uh, those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we, all, we, pray, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and, f- and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ." And Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. We thank you so much, Lord, that uh, even when we see the heaviness of passages like this, Lord, that you hold out the hand of hope. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, uh, Lord, to hope, uh, Lord, to have that hold, to hold, to hold fast, not to just wishful thinking, but a good expectation of what you've pre- prepared for us and provided for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Please, Father, help us to have that, let that hope be a motivation to endure whatever hardship and trials we go through, whatever persecution we we experience, and to reach those who desperately need to know you. Please, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name, and all who agree say, Amen. 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 So we saw in 1 Thessalonians that Paul was writing to a church that was really going through hard times. A church that he had with his team planted, started this church. He was there for a matter of weeks. And then as persecution arose, Paul and his team had to flee. And so they went on to the next city. But as they went on to the next city, what happened? Those who were left behind, the people in Thessalonica, they were experiencing severe persecution. And so Paul had sent Timothy to go see how they were doing. Timothy sees what's going on, he sees the, the, the faith they have and the, and the grace of God in their lives, the love that they have for each other, and he writes this really encouraging letter that we, we went over in 1 Thessalonians. And then after that letter goes through, just in a matter of weeks after the first letter, they get word that they appreciated the first letter, but things have actually gotten worse. Persecution's been ramped up even more. And I don't know about you, but sometimes the, those are the harder times. Sometimes when we, we get into a, a, a season of difficulty, we, we kind of settle into a, a place where we're going, okay, this is tough, but we trust the Lord and we feel like, okay, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to get through this. And we get through that season of difficulty and it seems to go from bad to worse. And you think, Lord, okay, I, I don't get it. Doesn't your word say something about you won't give us more than we can handle? I mean, I don't get it. How can it go from bad to worse? And we're tempted to go, "Ah, Lord, I give up. But what's amazing is even as Paul got word about how things have gone from bad to worse, he also got word about the faith and the faithfulness of these people in Thessalonica. So this church, this small, young church, continues to be a great example for all local churches. A great example of what it means to to glorify God, what it means to be faithful to Jesus in these last days, in these days before the Lord returns. And so what I want to talk about today really is, is what Paul's dealing with. He's addressing first and foremost the increase of persecution. And he's wanting to encourage these people about God's purposes in persecution. And you need to know off the bat, God has a purpose in allowing us to be persecuted as believers. He has a reason for it. This is not just God going, well, I do more, but I, I'm on a time frame and i got to wait for a while. No, God says, look, I, I want to use persecution. Yep. And, and Paul starts the letter off by, uh, by uh, a greeting that's almost exactly word for word like he did the first in 1 Thessalonians. And because it's word for word the same, it's easy to kind of go, oh, it's just a greeting. He's greeting them in the name of God and the name of Jesus. It's just a greeting. But it's more than that. Because what Paul's doing here is Paul's wanting to encourage them, remind them in who they put their faith. That they have put their faith in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They've put their faith, listen, in the God who knows exactly what it's like to be persecuted. Because the Bible teaches of this God, this creator God, that he's three in one and the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, took on human flesh. He pierced history and he lived in all the ways that we lived, experienced all the suffering we experience, including persecution. In fact, the Bible says this. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, verse 8. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And that's not him saying, hey, I used to walk to school both ways in the snow. It's not one of those kind of statements, okay? <laughs> it is a statement of comfort. He's saying, listen, I know it's hard to be hated but know that I know exactly what it's like to be hated. And so this greeting is more than a greeting. It's meant to be an encouragement. But we pick it up in verse 3, and Paul is just commending these guys in verse 3 for their faith. Look what he says. He says, We're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, because your faith grows exceedingly. And this is the first thing I want you to notice about persecution. Persecution, listen... Persecution is what develops extraordinary faith. Extraordinary faith is developed through persecution. So so this is important because even in saying that statement, I can, from the look of your faces, you're going, "Uh, so, because what it exposes is, here's what happens in our hearts. In our hearts, when when I say something like that, what happens is we go, okay, well, can't I just have a minimal amount of faith? I just need enough faith to get to heaven. As long as I avoid hell, that's enough faith. I don't really need extraordinary faith. (laughs) That's kind of how we look at things. But the truth is, if we see faith as the most precious possession we have. And remember, faith is not just an acceptance of certain ideas. When we talk about faith in the New Testament sense, faith is about trust in relationship. It's about recognizing that we have a real, eternal relationship with a living God whom we know we can trust. That's what we mean by faith. And their faith had grown, grown exceedingly, and you know how it grew? Through this persecution. And, and Paul's saying, man, we are, we're, just, we're bound to thank God for this because he says this is what, how that faith showed itself, that the love of every one of you abounds towards each other. In other words, this extraordinary faith was a faith that God, uh, you know, that, that um, was a faith in God who experienced suffering, but it's also a faith that, that shows itself, that abounds in brotherly love. So it's not just kind of this, you know, eyes to the sky and, and kind of thinking lofty thoughts and ignoring what goes around you. It's a faith that it communicates it, it shows itself in a commitment to other believers specifically. It's interesting because Paul actually prayed for this, didn't he, in 1 Thessalonians. We read this, didn't we? Remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 3? Paul prays, may the, Lord, may the uh, Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. And he says later on, we urge you, brethren, that you increase in love more and more. And guess what's happening? Even though persecution is increasing, love is increasing more. Can you see how important this is, how necessary this is, especially as you're going through persecution? If you've ever been persecuted, even in a small way, and let's be honest, compared to a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world, any persecution we experience is probably quite small. But if you've been marginalized, if you've been pushed aside by non-Christian friends or family, been treated like you're a bit odd because of this Jesus stuff, isn't the thing that really encourages you to know that you're with other people that love you and commit to you because they go through the same kind of thing? This is what Paul's talking about. Paul prayed for this. This is what happened. I want you to keep in mind the fact that Paul prayed for this because it's going to be important later on. But then in verses 4 and 5, he also talks about, describes this extraordinary faith as a faith that actually rejoices in the midst of suffering. In verse 4, he says this, So that we ourselves, notice, boast of uh, of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith, and in all your persecutions and tribulations which you endure. Now, the word for patience there, it means joyful or cheerful endurance. And so Paul says, listen, hey, we're bragging about you guys. Now don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand this. Paul's not going, man, I know how to start churches. Four weeks, these guys rock. I mean, he's not bragging about himself. He's he's not even bragging about them. He's not saying, they're amazing. He's saying, wow, God is doing an amazing thing in them. He's boasting about God because he sees they're not just kind of oh, hanging in there, barely holding on the suffering. They're going, Lord, this is horrible, but you're good. This is horrible, but we're still rejoicing in you. Their persecution ends up being this, this example to all the other churches in the area. Guys, I, I have to say, I can imagine. I, I pray for this, that God would do such a work at Servants Church, that the other churches in Norwich would go, wow, that church has gone through difficult things, but God's doing a good thing there and we want God to do a good thing in us. That's what was going on there. Why did it happen? Where did it come from? Persecution. In fact in verse 5 look what it says. He says, Uh, which is the manifest evidence, we'll talk about what he means by that in a second, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now it's important that we recognize that Paul's not saying, hey look, you're earning your place in the kingdom. That this being counted worthy is an earning of worthiness. That's not what Paul's saying. That would completely contradict all that Paul said all over the place in his epistles. Now this is not about... Earning this, this is about demonstrating a worthiness. It's about demonstrating that you've already been declared by God as worthy of the kingdom of God. Now Jesus taught us to pray this way in Luke chapter 21. And this is in Luke 21 is when Jesus is talking about how difficult things will be in the last days. And he says, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. These things are a reference to God pouring out his wrath on this earth. He said, to stand before the Son of Man. Now when Jesus says, pray to be worthy, he's not saying that, listen, earn that through your prayers. He's saying, let your right relationship be where your security is. That You know, this is the only way I escape the wrath of God is because of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's, That's where we get worthiness. Righteousness is first and foremost a gift that we receive by faith. And so when he says, pray to be worthy, this is what he's referring to. Now that faith that we receive, that or that righteousness that we receive, that word that we receive by faith, it doesn't just stay a position we receive. It's expressed in being willing to walk with Jesus no matter what the cost. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians. Paul writes in Philippians, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies, speaking of those who persecute you. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed. This is what he's referring to when he says manifest evidence. Assigned to them that they're going to be destroyed, but you are going to be saved even by God Himself, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Him. Have you ever thought about persecution as a privilege? You know, the New Testament shows clearly that persecution is a privilege. Now, some of you here are not being persecuted necessarily but you're, you're going through suffering and you're thinking that's fine if I'm persecuted for Jesus sake I can see that's a privilege but I'm just suffering because I'm suffering. If you suffer in faith toward Jesus you need to know something. God says that's a privilege. I am demonstrating your worthiness. You See this is something for us to really get our head around. That this extraordinary faith that God wants to develop through persecution and just even through overall suffering, this extraordinary faith is something that God is giving us. It's a gift that he's developing in us. Imagine that you're 17 and a half, some of you are. Imagine if you're 17 and a half, you've just passed your driving exam. And your parents give you a brand new car. I know that doesn't really happen very often, but just we're imagining They give you this car and you're going, wow, this is great, but the car's a manual and you only got a license for an automatic. Mm. The gift isn't much good unless you're taught how to use the gift. See, this gift of saving faith that God develops in us through people coming alongside and telling us about Jesus, through the work of His Spirit, showing us that we need Jesus, this gift of saving faith, that it is a gift, it's developed as we continue to trust Him, especially in the midst of persecution. It's a gift that He wants to develop. It becomes the most precious thing to us. Now, persecution isn't an easy thing. We should romanticize persecution. But we should see that God's clear in his word that his purpose for it is to develop in us extraordinary faith. Now, not only that, but also God's justice is demonstrated through persecution. Look what he says in verse 6. In verse 6 he says, "...since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Now, if you have the New International Version of the Bible, you'll notice that, it starts that verse 6 starts off different. Three words, a clear and simple statement. What does it say? Anybody have NIV? Anyone have NIV? God is just. That's what it says. That's a better translation, really. God is just. Now, the reason Paul says this is because in talking about God's justice, and you need to know there's a lot of sort of phrases here. F- phrases like um, uh, right, uh, righteous, like it says in verse 16, or verse 6, a righteous thing, righteous, or later on when it says um, vengeance. These words all have their own connotation in our mind in the English, but they're all actually connected to this very clear truth of justice. And the scripture is clear that God himself defines justice. See, one of the reasons I don't like the term social justice is not because I'm not for social justice, because it kind of separates it from justice big J, you might say. So when we talk about justice, here's what we mean. We mean We mean the the requirements of God that are based on the character of God. Justice. The requirements of God based on the character of God. God is just. The whole reason we have a sense of justice, and if you don't know what I mean by that, when you've been treated wrongly, you then sense it's been an injustice. And the reason we all have that, whether we believe in God or not, we all have this sense of injustice. It's because we've been made in the image of God. We're image bearers of God. And so we have a sense of right and wrong. We have a sense of justice and injustice that comes from actually who God is. Now, it's interesting because we can have all kinds of different ideas about what that justice should look like. But Paul says, here's the way it goes. It goes back to who God is. Who is God? And what does he command based on his character? That's justice. And so Paul wants to make sure that they understand this. Paul wants to to remind them that they can be comforted in the midst of, of, of persecution because God is just. Now I want to be clear too. This does not mean that God submits himself to justice but that God defines justice. We, as people, have to submit ourselves to justice, both in a local governmental sense and also in an ultimate eternal sense to the God who is just. And Paul's wanting to comfort these people to say, look, God is just. And let's be clear, this is the main reason why people say they don't wanna believe. Because they say things like, if God is good, why doesn't he do something about the suffering on this earth? That's a valid question. Because we have a sense that there's so much injustice and there is so much injustice. Including the injustice written about here being done to Christians. And Paul says, listen, the way we have understanding, the way we have hope is to begin with understanding that God himself defines justice. He goes on to say this, look at verse 6 again. He says it's a righteous thing that God, for God, I'm sorry, it was a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Now the word for tribulation, and the word for trouble, they're actually the same word. So it's it's a way that, in a way Paul's saying it's right for God to trouble those who trouble you. Now now there's two groups that that Paul's dealing with in this section from basically from verse. 6 to verse 10. There's two groups. He's dealing with those who believe and those who do not believe. Those who put their faith in Jesus and those who don't put their faith in Jesus. Those are the two groups. Now, I recognize that within each of those groups there's a spectrum. I do recognize this, okay? And, and I recognize too that those that are in the, in the group of unbelievers, the first group we're going to deal with, that all unbelievers don't persecute believers. In fact, I have many friends who respect my faith, who appreciate my faith, who don't believe in Jesus, So I understand that as well. But from an eternal perspective, from a perspective of ultimate eternal justice, there's two groups, those who put their faith in Jesus and those who have not. I know it's hard for us to understand. But if you think about it, if you really think through this, it actually makes sense. It's It's actually the wisdom of God. Think about it if God said, okay, here's the deal. There's right and there's wrong, and you've got to figure out what it is. Because that's kind of how we act, isn't it? And so we all sense there is right and wrong, but guess what? We'd never agree with what's right or wrong. We constantly battle, fight, bicker. Whether it's politically-based conflicts or religiously-based conflicts, we're all trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And God says, no, I'm going to make it really clear I'm going to give you my law first, Old Testament. Then I'm going to give you my own son, New Testament. So you can know exactly what is right and wrong, what I require of you and what I don't. And so what he says here in dealing with, he begins here in verse 6, in dealing with those who don't believe. And in a very simple thing, very simple way, what he's saying here is this. He's saying that this justice towards the unbelieving is basically them reaping what they sow. So when, talk, when God talks about judging the unbeliever, in a sense, he's, they're reaping what they sow. Now in this context, they troubled believers, they're going to be troubled. But I want you to keep that, that idea of reaping and sowing important in your mind because this is a, a principle throughout Scripture. The Bible says in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. Now, some have tried to connect this to karma, but it's not quite the same. The idea here, listen, the idea here is that, listen, if you are sowing seeds or if you are living your life in such a way that you persecute God's people or you ignore who God is, that's what you're going to end up with. And Paul's saying, listen, God's just in doing this. Drop down to verse 8, Paul says, very terrifying words, he says in flaming fire, this is when Jesus comes back, he will, in flaming fire take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Now, again, that word vengeance, poor translation, it, it conjures up in our mind vindication or someone being vindictive, but the idea just means justice being fulfilled. In fact, the the word for for punishment later on is a word that means to, to give you what the law requires. Now, all of us agree with this. None of us think that people should get away with crime, do we? Well, of course we don't. We all want there to be consequences. We hope that this side of heaven, those consequences can be restorative and we can see people get right. But we still know there has to be consequences for there to be peace, doesn't there? And so what God's saying here, or what Paul's saying here, Uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is there are these consequences. Now, interesting, he he describes the unbeliever this way, right? It it sounds like two categories, but it's actually just one category, okay? One category. He says, they are those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Now, the scripture talks about this idea of, of humanity being... Not just ignorant. When it says don't know God, don't think like, well, I didn't know. Oh, gee, I would like to have known, but I didn't know. Don't, don't think that. Humanity, humanly speaking, here, here's our hearts, all of us. I'm not, this is not you and not me. This is all of us left to our own device. Humanity has a willful, rebellious streak that we just don't want to know. Now, some of you guys have experienced this. You... You know, you, you, maybe at work or with some of your mates, you know, you're, you keep trying to bring Jesus up in the conversation because you want your friends to know Jesus. You want them to know forgiveness. You want them to have eternal life. And they're just like, no thanks, mate, no thanks. And then you kind of bring it up again. They're like, no, mate, no, come on. And then they, they, they come up and they state their opinion with, with zeal and, 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 and fervor about some issue. And you go, well, actually, Jesus says this. And they go, we don't want to know, mate. Have you ever been in that, had that experience? I've had that experience. That's what I mean by willful ignorance. This is how we are. We just don't want to know. Unless God chases us down. This is how we are. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that people don't have a desire for spiritual things or that people don't have, uh, even some people have an openness. They seem to have an openness to the things of God. What I'm saying is when that's there, it's because God's doing a work. And when it's not there, it's because God said, okay, if that's the way you're going to be, I'm going to let you be that way. It's heavy. But listen to this. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 1. He says, All of humanity know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky, and through everything God has had made that they can clearly see his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, so that they are without—they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like, and as a result, their minds became dark and confused. In other words, even though we look at creation and the natural thing to say there's got to be a creator, we say, no, no, it must have come on a giant turtle. No, you laugh, but we say, no, it must have happened by a random chance. There was nothing and then nothing made everything. That's just as ridiculous. The reality is our hearts are hard, and so we want to push this thing away. And Paul's saying, look, this is what happens to unbelievers. They, they are basically, they're experiencing the consequence, God's justice against the consequence for their willful ignorance and rebellion. I, I know this is hard to hear. I, I know it's really hard to hear. But we have to understand this. If we are trying to share Jesus with our friends, and we're only treating them like victims, they're never going to get the gospel. Because though we are victims of sin, people sin against us in in hideous ways and people are really injured by the sin done against them. But here's the reality, we're also perpetrators, both to others and toward God. Because even though we can know God, we say, ah, I don't want to know, man. This is our sinful heart until God does a work in us. So Paul's saying, man, God's justice towards them is right. Look at verse 9. He says, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's a really important phrase, from the, because what Paul's describing here is an everlasting separation from everything good. Please don't delude yourself into thinking that hell is a place where you'll go party with your friends. And here's 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 why I'm saying this. I'm not saying this because, oh, I'm a Christian and I'm approved and I don't like to party. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this because of this reason. Even the fact that you like to party, like to celebrate with your friends. Forget about what you might do to celebrate. That's that's a side issue. But the fact that you like to celebrate with your friends, that's a good gift from God. Do you realize that? The fact that you want friends is a gift of God. The fact that you have friends or relationships with people you can celebrate is a gift from God. The fact that you have things that you can celebrate at all is a gift from God. And when you say, oh, I don't want a nomad, I don't want that stuff, you realize you're biting the hand that feeds you. You're saying, I don't want the one who's given me every good thing. This is exactly what the Bible says about God. It says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God doesn't change. He's a good God who gives good gifts. But when we say, Sorry, God, I don't have nothing to do with you. I just want the good. Eventually, you find that it doesn't work that way. Now, I don't know about you, but Sometimes when I, when I hear this, when I read this, I think, well, God, how come it can't work that way? I've had that thought. Why can't it work this way? You need to understand something. The scripture betrays God as the God who made everything for man. But he made it as a means to the end because what God really wants to give us is the greatest thing he can possibly give us. You know what that is? Himself. And so when we take the good things that God gives us to point us to his goodness, his trustworthiness, and we say, no, nah, I don't want you, God. I only want these good things. We're missing the point. We are actually taking those good things and making them God things that are idols. We're doing the very things that Paul wrote about in Romans 1 that we just read. And so this is the, this is the reality. Justice towards the unbeliever is a reaping what they sow. It is the consequence of a willful ignorance and rebellion and it is an everlasting separation from every good gift from God. Guys, listen, it's not easy for me to talk about this. I know it's not easy to hear, but I'm saying this to you because I really believe that God wants you to know this so that you can be assured that you can trust him, that you would turn from living for yourself and say, God, every good thing is from you and I want to trust you who is good. See, God's not looking to take the good stuff away from you. He gave you the good stuff. He might want to make, he might want to make it better. <laughs> he might want to show you how to celebrate in a way that doesn't kill all your brain cells. But the point is, listen, the point is, He has good for you if you're willing to admit that you are this rebellious one that needed Him to save you. Now, He also, though, talks about justice towards those who believe, the, towards the believing. Because they're the ones that are suffering here, aren't they? They're the ones that are experiencing the consequence of people sinning against them. Look what he says. Verse 7. Go back to verse 7. He says, God is, is right to do this. He says, To give you who are troubled rest with us. Paul's talking about someone who was also persecuted. Rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, what he's talking about here is, he, he, obviously we've, we already mentioned that these guys are they're having a cheerful endurance through difficulties, right? They, they, they're experiencing joy. But the, let's be honest, when you're going through persecution, it's not an easy thing. It's a grieving, painful process. Please don't picture people who are going, oh, this is awesome, I get to get beat up. They are feeling the sting of the lash of a whip, they are experiencing the, the, the worry of the loss of income. They are wondering, they're feeling the, the, the pain of separation from family who's rejected them. Don't minimize what they've gone through, even though they're still finding joy in Jesus. And the promise that he's, he's making here is, is this. He's saying, listen, all the things that rob your joy are going to be over soon and very soon. Soon and very soon, there's going to be justice for you. And here's what you're going to experience. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 21 says, God's home is now among his people, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Lord. That's justice. That's God's justice for those who believe. Oh, it's not really justice because I don't deserve it. No, you don't. But don't you get it? This is the gospel. (laughs) This is the gospel that the unbeliever rejects. The gospel is this. Listen, is that God is so good that he took on human flesh and lived a perfect life, always walked in love, and purposely allowed himself to be crucified to pay for the sins that we've done against him. On the cross, God is literally absorbing his own uh, wrath on himself. He's absorbing all the sin done against you. Why? So he can say, you're forgiven. So he can adopt you into his family. This is the gospel. And he rose from the dead to guarantee, listen, to guarantee all that he said is true and to provide for us a way to know with certainty, no matter how bad things get, we're going to be resurrected as well. And we're going to experience all these things. Death. Death will die. Pain is going to be temporary. This is what he says. Now, if you go down to verse 10, here's what he also says. When he comes in that day, it says when Jesus returns, he'll, be, he'll return to be glorified, notice, in his saints and to be admired among all who believe because our testimony among you, which you believe—in other words, you believe this gospel, this testimony that we shared—and what's going to happen is, you're going to you're going to glorify God in you. Now, what that what he's talking about there is, he, he's he's using language. He's using a preposition to express an intimacy that's hard to put into words. So that when we see Jesus face to face, we're going to be so one with him. It's going to be hard to express that closeness that we have remember what we said earlier, what God wants to give us more than anything is He wants to give us Himself. So so what He's doing now is He's preparing us to see Him face to face. He's preparing us to enjoy Him forever so that we'll glorify God in us but also we'll be glorifying Him among us. The world that we all want is what He's preparing us for through persecution this is what he's doing. In fact, this is what the Bible says in 1 John. It's, there's a mystery to this, but there's a factuality to this as well. In 1 John chapter 3, John writes, "See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are." This is what we become when we receive the good news of Jesus, children of God. He says, "The reason the world does not know us is that they did not know him." Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been revealed or been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So think of it this way, okay? I'm now I'm talking mainly to you guys who are already Jesus followers, okay? Think of it this way. As you are saying, okay, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to know you, Jesus. I believe you've died to pay for all my sins, Jesus. I believe you're alive, and therefore I'm going to be alive forever, Jesus. As that's your heart attitude, you're moving towards a destiny to be made like Jesus. Now, you fall short of that now. So do I. We all fall short of that now. But as we move toward that destiny, guess what we have? This hope, this expectation of good, that we're going to actually get there. And we don't even know exactly what it's going to be like, but we know we're going to be made like the glorified Jesus that's going to allow us to enjoy something with him that only he's enjoyed for eternity. That is fellowship with the the living God. It's not going to be on clouds with harps. you know. It's not going to be some sort of boring... It's not going to be us kind of losing all of our... Uh, our identities. It's going to be the fulfillment of all that we are created to be. It's going to be a perfect love toward one another. It's going to be a perfect love for God. It's going to be knowing his love perfectly. It's going to be the world we all want. And, and Paul's saying to these guys, listen, this is God's justice for you. Ever, you know that verse, a lot of you guys know this verse, uh, 1 John 1 1.9, uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. You know why he says just? How is God just? How is God just to forgive me who sinned against him? I can see mercy, but why just? He's just because Christ already paid for that. He already paid for our sin. So that when we go, oh Lord, I blew it again, forgive me. God says, I do forgive you. Christ paid for that. So that when we are striving and struggling and saying, Lord, it's so hard to be persecuted. It's so hard to suffer for your sake, It's so hard to keep trusting you when my marriage is a mess or when my kids are gone astray or when my boss is just the devil or whatever. It's so hard to trust you in these difficult circumstances. But God, you're just. And because Christ has paid the price, it's just, it's right for you to guarantee me heaven. To guarantee me that perfected place with you. Do you get that? Do you understand? Is that not indeed good news? Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going too long. Got to hurry up. So, so God's purpose in persecution, it is, he does want to uh, extraordinary faith is developed through persecution. God's justice is going to be demonstrated through per- persecution. Our hope is justified because we have this expectation of good because Jesus, or God the just has paid for our sins. But also, listen, effective prayer is energized through persecution. Uh, did any of you guys get this little pamphlet from Open Doors? We support Open Doors as a church. I don't know if you knew that. Part of your money goes to Open Doors, whether you knew that or not. Um, We Support Open Doors is a great ministry that that mainly helps support the persecuted church. This is a great little guide to how to pray for the persecuted church. They give you a little, just a little blip for each day. It's a great, it's a great way. And I'll tell you, it really builds your faith. Because you see that people are going through stuff and rejoicing in Jesus and still bearing fruit for his name. And Paul's saying this is how we're praying for those in Thessalonica. Quickly, verse 11, he says, Therefore we also pray always for you that God would count you worthy of this calling. What calling? The calling to endure persecution. Now, how many Christians would you estimate are called to persecution? (laughs) All of them. Well, listen to this. Let's see if Greg's right. He likes to always answer. All right, let's see if Greg's right. (laughs) right. 2 Timothy 3, 12-13. In fact, everyone, Greg was right, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, it's not a promise that we're all going to be persecuted to the same degree. It has to do with where we live and what time of history we live in. But the reality is, Paul says this is a guarantee. If you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus... You're going to be marginalized for it. You're going to be pushed aside for it. You're going to be seen as a crazy person for it. You may even get beat up for it. In fact, he seems to indicate there it's going to get worse and worse the closer we get to the Lord's return. Can you see why Paul's saying we're praying for Yahweh? Can you see why we should pray without ceasing as we read a couple weeks ago? Can you see why it's important for us to commit to praying for one another? it's not easy to follow Jesus in a world that thinks we're crazy, or even sometimes hates us. It's not easy. That's why we need to be committed to pray for each other. Look at verse 11 again. He says, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. So first Paul's praying for faithfulness to the calling to follow Jesus no matter what the cost. But now he's praying for the power for them to be fruitful in good works in the midst of suffering. Now you think he'd just say, just hang on, as if you're hanging on by your fingernails. Okay, just don't give up, just hang on. You know, it's that sort of, that scene from the movie where you're like, ah, oh, I'm hanging on with one hand and Jesus is going to reset down and pull me up. Ah. That's not the picture being painted. He's saying, yes, they're just about to kill you, so make sure you serve them tea, is what he's giving that. I mean this, listen to this. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44? You guys know the scripture, right? Matthew 5, 44. Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. We need power to do this. You know, listen, I believe God does supernatural stuff today. I believe God heals supernaturally I believe God still does miracles today. But you know what power most demonstrates the goodness of God? It's those who suffer and still do good against their enemies. That power is what testifies to the gospel. Listen to this. Peter says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, people go, You're ridiculous, man. Why do you believe in this Jesus and they treat you bad? And you continue to treat them good. You show yourself to be the best friend and the best employee and the best spouse and the best neighbor you can be by the grace of God. When you do that, people go, Whoa, okay. I got to admit, there's something good about this. Recently we were having a meal with a couple who the the one of the spouses isn't a believer, and we were talking about some mutual friends that we have that are believers, and this unbeliever was saying about our mutual friends that were believers. I thought that family was weird. But now I see the fruit, I see that result of their life. Those kids are great kids, and I gotta say, wow, there's something special about what happened in that family. Weirdos for doing what they do. First saying, Jesus is telling them to do this. But now I I see the fruit and I got to say, I can't accuse them of anything, but there's good there. God says, Paul says, I'm praying for that power for you in Thessalonica. Mm. God says we should pray for that for each other. Mm. Lastly, verse 12. He says, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying for grace. But specifically, that God would give grace to these guys so that they could know Jesus more and show Jesus more until the day that he returns. Now, it's important for us to recognize grace, if you guys have been in church for a while, you know grace is God's unmerited favor, his undeserved favor. But grace is also God's divine enabling. That when we don't even want to endure or press on, God gives us grace to do it anyway. When we feel like we don't have what it takes, God gives us grace. Sometimes we go, oh God, if I only had more faith. God says, you know what? Why don't you just ask for more grace? Because he wants to give grace upon grace upon grace. Grace is what's offered to us as we humble ourselves to, before God. You know, everyone needs this grace. The Apostle Paul, when he was going through a tough time, he was trusting for God's grace. He was trusting that God was going to give him grace through the prayers of other people. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us, you also helping together in prayers for us. Paul says, man, we thought we were going to die, and we knew God was saying, okay, Can you trust that I can raise the dead? All right, Lord, we're going to trust. Even if we die, you can raise the dead. But you know what helped us get us through? You prayed for us. Mm -hmm. This is what persecution does. It energizes prayer. Think about what we pray for. Think about how little we pray. You know why we don't pray much? We don't need much. We're comfortable. We don't pray much because... We're comfortable. Now, I'm not saying, okay, make yourself uncomfortable so you start praying, but I'm thinking, what if we engaged at more in prayer for others? What if our prayer was about supporting one another when we're being persecuted or we're suffering? What if it was about praying for our suffering brothers and sisters all around the world? Would it not energize your prayers to go, wow, God, you can use if you can use their prayers to help the Corinthian church didn't even really like Paul if you can use their prayers to help Paul you can use my prayers to help believers being persecuted in in Nepal <laughs> or anywhere else Pakistan Iran Iran, Iran. Israel. The point is this guys God has a plan for persecution He has a purpose in it He doesn't call us to pursue persecution he calls us to pursue love, love for him, love for each other, love of the truth. We'll talk about that next week. Love for the lost. He, expects us to, he calls us to pursue love, but expect persecution. We expect persecution, not because, just because the world's so bad, no, but because our God is good and can even use that to prepare us for glory. Father, I pray you would help us to see that. Lord, that we would not pursue suffering or persecution, but Lord, we would expect it. And that, Lord, we would, we would say, Lord, if that's what it, 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 I need to draw closer to you, then let it be. If that's what I need to convince my friends that you're real, then that's what it, let it be. God, give us that heart. Help us to be willing to, to, to still trust you like the Thessalonian Christians did, that you might be made known. Please, Lord, we pray. And Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that uh, they would be willing to consider who you are. Because, Lord, we're not, you're not calling any of us to put our faith in some idea. You're calling us to put our faith in you. The God who pierced history. Who died and rose again. The God who will return soon in Jesus. Lord, we, we want to Pray that anyone who doesn't know you might come to know you even today. Please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.